This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Where is God? There is perhaps no human question filled with more bewilderment and frustration and loneliness than that one. When we consider the immensity and the beauty and the antiquity of the creation, for most of us, for most human beings throughout all of history and even today, it seems that there must be a creator. There is something so right about the way things are that surely they or it must be the product of a colossal and extraordinary mind driven by a vast, unfathomable love. And to be human is to hunger for contact with that personal immensity, that loving power. But although the, evident, the universe is evidence of his power and glory, God himself seems hidden. He is invisible. It's the ultimate image problem. We cannot see him. Though we cannot escape from his presence wherever we go, whether to the depths of the seas or the tops of the mountains, God is concealed from us. So what do we do? Where are we to go? Well, that's why you and I invent God substitutes. Out of our frustration, we turn to objects and devote ourselves to them. Whether the statues that some people bow down before or the cult of human power and celebrity, or the gods of money, power, pleasure, experience, and fame that have captured the devotion of our hearts. At least, we say to ourselves, we can see those gods. We can touch them. The only problem for us is that these idols are definitely not God. In fact, their very tangibility, the fact that they are presented in front of us, means of course they cannot be God. They did not create the world. They do not have the desire to know us or the power to save us. And so that leaves us still asking the same question. Where is God so that I can meet him? When I make an appointment to see someone, so I've made appointments to see many of you over the time, over the, over the years, I figure out, we figure out together a time and a place. But God is eternal and God is everywhere. So how can I meet him? Something of the same puzzle drives the story of Exodus. For the, for the years of slavery, the Hebrews had wondered where the God of Abraham, the God of their ancestors, might be. And Moses had his surprise encounter with the Lord in the burning bush and learnt that he was intended to rescue, that the Lord was intending to rescue the people of Egypt from Egypt and put them in the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. And somehow, this Lord, the one who called himself, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, that strange name we transliterate as Yahweh or Jehovah, that name that only God could call himself, no human being could call themselves that, not truly, somehow that Lord in his utter freedom and independence from anyone, wanted to be with them, to live with them and be their God and for them to be his people. 
And then they were brought out majestically through that adventure story that is the leaving of Egypt through the ten plagues and the Passover night and through the Red Sea on the dry land. They walked and came to Mount Sinai and gathered around it, as we heard last week. But they kept their distance because although God was present there on top of the mountain in the thunder and the lightning, it was also a terrifying thing to see. And when they heard the law... When they heard God's character, what holiness means, given to them in the Ten Commandments, do you remember what their response was? Certainly was not casual. They were terrified. They experienced a very human dilemma. Although we want to know our Creator, when we get a sense of how holy He is, And when we reckon with how unholy we are, we are rightly frightened. We are rightly in fear. Actually encountering God, though we hunger for it, is frightening, which is why in the Bible, whenever people do encounter the glory of God, they tend to fall on their faces as though dead. When Isaiah met the holiness of the Lord in the temple, he he said, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. How can I survive this encounter? How can the holy live with the unholy? So I can imagine that when the Israelites thought about God living with them, they imagined it was like someone announcing that uh, they're about to build a nuclear power plant on Darling Point. Not great for real estate prices, I imagine. What does the Lord do then? How is he going to solve this dilemma, promising to live with people as their God and they as his people and yet holy and unholy, oil and water, how are those two going to mix? Well, he explains for us in the book of Exodus that he is going to live amongst his people in a tent. Now, our English translations use the religious-sounding word tabernacle. You may have heard that word, but this word just means, doesn't mean anything more than just tent. It means dwelling place, place you live. So God is going to go camping with his people who are on the move between Egypt and the Promised Land. Just as they are living in tents, he is going to live in a tent with them. It's ordinary, but it's also extraordinary. Now, most of the book, the rest of the book of Exodus is devoted to the lavish and detailed instructions of how to build the tent. That happens in chapters 25 through to 31. And then there's an incident in the middle, which we'll look at next week. And then in chapters 33 to 40, you get a very repetitious section because it's how Moses and the people went about building the tent according to the instructions that were given to them in 25 to 31. It's scarcely the adventure yarn that the rest of the book of Exodus has been, but clearly the person who wrote the book of Exodus wants us to think this is a really important thing. And the impression that you get from the instructions for building the tent is that this was to be an extremely lavish and expensive tent. For one thing, the tent was made in blue and purple and crimson. These are extremely rare dyes in the ancient world. Purple dye came from a shellfish, so you had to kind of farm the shellfish or catch it and make the dye from that. That's why emperors and kings wore purple in the ancient world. Extremely expensive. 
And it was also to be filled with gold and silver and bronze. It was to take fine craftsmen, the best of their skill to make with loving care. It was made from the free gifts of the people, as we heard in the passage that we just learned, as their hearts led them to give gifts to build this tent. There was nothing slapdash or shoddy about this building, about this tent. Let me take you on a short mental tour of the tent, the tabernacle. First of all, the tent was surrounded by a courtyard with a portable fence that they could put up. And in this courtyard was a bronze basin filled with water, there for washing. And so any of the priests that went into the tent had to wash their hands and feet to purify themselves before they went to do the business that they were going to do in the tent. There was also an altar for the offering of burnt offerings, the uh, the animal sacrifices that were to be made. That was also in the courtyard surrounding the tent, the tabernacle. And then we come to the tent. Now the tent, an oblong shape, was divided into two rooms. The holy place and the most holy place, or sometimes called the holy of holies. In the holy place stood, if you, went, if you go in on the right-hand side, there is the, a table, a special table, which has the bread of presence on it, a stack of bread that would be refreshed every, every week. On the left, you'd have the golden candlestick, the menorah, which the Jews still use as a symbol today. And in front of you, just before the curtain at the end of the holy place, was the altar of incense, like a great incense burner. And daily, they would burn incense in the tent. Then there was a curtain. And on that curtain, there were angelic beings, cherubs, stitched into the fabric. And behind that curtain was the most holy place, which was a perfect cube. And in that place stood a sacred box. We know it as the Ark of the Covenant. You might remember it from Raiders of the Lost Ark. In that box, that precious box, were kept the law that were written on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and some other objects, including a sample of the manna that Israel had been fed by, fed with in the wilderness. On top of the ark, on the lid, were two cherubim of gold, two angels with wings, facing each other with the wings outstretched. And this space above the lid, the kipporet, the kipporet, which is sometimes called the mercy seat, some translations use that word, the mercy seat, was the focus of the whole elaborate structure. It was the punchline of the whole, the whole structure. And you know what was there? Nothing. If you'd gone into a pagan shrine, this is where the god made of stone or wood would have sat. But in this tent, the tent of the God of Israel, the creator God, there was only a space because the true God is not an object or an item. But in this space, God promised to be present to his people. He says, there I will meet you and from above the kipporet, the mercy seat, 
on that lid, in between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Covenant, I will deliver to you all my commands for the Israelites. This is why it was called sometimes the Tent of Meeting, because it was the place to meet with God. It was God's address. It was where heaven met earth. It's where the, uh, the holy agreed to meet with the unholy, where the immortal agreed to meet with the mortal. But even the arrangements for meeting with him were very carefully constructed. You couldn't just pop over for a cup of tea one afternoon. There were priests, special people who were there to serve in the tent. They were dedicated to do that, set apart for a life of service in this tent. And there were ceremonies that they were supposed to perform there on regular occasions. The priests had the duty to offer the sacrifices. Twice a day they would burn incense in the tent. They had to keep the altar of the burnt offerings uh, going, burning all the time. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the day our neighbours here in the eastern suburbs call Yom Kippur. You've heard them celebrate Yom Kippur. Kippur comes from that word Kipporet. It's the same, the same word, the same Hebrew word. On that day, the high priest would go behind the curtain. That's the only time he was allowed to go behind the curtain. And with the blood of a bull and a goat, he would make atonement for the sins of the people by sprinkling it on the Kipporet. That place between the cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. What was this all about? The people of Israel were supposed to have two important facts burned into their psyches, burned into their, their national culture and identity. The weirdness of this structure was meant to stand out and tell them these two things. The first was this that the Lord God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the almighty Lord, had chosen to live among them, with them, as their God. They were to be his holy nation, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, the mysterious and infinite Lord of all creation, who no human mind can fathom, can even begin to understand, has an address. He's got a location. You can find him. He determined to reveal himself to them and to guide them and to make them his holy people, to be among them and with them. It was not that, however, and this is important to, this, to, to get right, it was not, however, that God was contained within the walls of this tabernacle. Or later in Israel's history, they would imagine that somehow God was, was kind of stuck in the Ark of the Covenant, contained there. He was somehow represented there as a talisman. They could use these facts as uh, somehow to, to make God do what they wanted him to do. They thought that God was captured in some way in this building, but that could be not further from the truth. Neither was God coaxed to live there, as you can encourage, I believe, a frog to your backyard by setting up a nice pond. This was not a way of coaxing God to live with them. This was entirely God's free choice. It was his idea to go camping with Israel. It was his design, this tent, this structure. And he told them how to approach him there. The Lord had chosen to live with them. That's the first thing. What a privilege. But secondly, even though he was living just down the road, just next door, there was still a distance. God was still concealed from view. 
in order to relate to God, the problem of sin needed to be dealt with. The stain of sin could not be ignored. Israel were, by nature, no purer than the Egyptians. That's why they had this elaborate ritual of sacrifice and bloodshed as part of the rhythm of daily and annual life again and again and again, atoning for their sins, making the unholy holy. Later, the tabernacle was to be replaced by the more permanent structure of the temple under King Solomon. It's a very dramatic picture of life together with God. But it's also a symbol of an even greater meeting place that lay in the future. It also pointed towards something more permanent. The idea that you had to make these sacrifices again and again and again seems to suggest that there would be one day a more decisive way that God would live together with human beings. The other problem was that... uh, while the tabernacle was a tent and could be transported from place to place, that once the temple had been anchored in Jerusalem in one spot, in order to encounter God there, you had to visit one spot on the earth. And yet, how would that make sense if God was the creator of all things and everywhere? When Jesus was born, he was given the name Emmanuel. Do you remember what that means? God with us. In the famous opening of John's Gospel, we read that the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus, became flesh and literally pitched his tent, came camping with us. During his lifetime, Jesus often said that his body was the temple. And Paul and the other New Testament writers used the language of the kippurat, the mercy seat, to talk about Jesus' death. They said, they, told, they tell us that Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice of atonement for us, to reconcile us to God, did permanently what was done temporarily in that encounter with God in the tabernacle, in the, in the temple. And Jesus is called in the letter to the Hebrews, the, our, most, our great high priest who enters the most holy place on our behalf, goes before us as our great high priest and makes the sacrifice of himself to God to bring us, to reconcile us to him. When Jesus died upon the cross and breathed his last, the great curtain that was in the temple that separated the holy of holies, the most holy place from the holy place, do you remember, was torn in two from top to bottom. Where is God? God came to live with us in his son, in Jesus Christ. And how do we, the unholy, relate to the holy God? We don't need to go go to Jerusalem by all means. Have a lovely holiday there. We do not need to go to Jerusalem to relate to the holy God. The problem of our sin is now met for us in Jesus Christ. We have all we need in him. And so we need not look with desperation and longing to try and find out where to meet God now. He is here in his son. When we come, when we gather together to hear, rehearse, to retell the stories about him, to hear his teaching, to share with one another his love. He is here. 
And by his spirit, God lives among us, his people, as his temple. Not only does the New Testament call Jesus God's temple, it also calls the people of God the temple of God. The Apostle Peter calls us the living stones of the temple that are being made into a new building in which God lives and dwells. And that's why, for Christians, God does not live in buildings made of stones, however beautiful they are, but rather in the people who meet together in them. On the beam above the choir stall here, you might not be able to see it because of the screen here, uh, but it says, and you may have pondered what these words have said for, because it's uh, not exactly clear lettering, but the words there say, reverence my sanctuary, reverence my sanctuary. It's a verse from Leviticus, the book just after Exodus, where God is telling the people to have regard to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, to revere it, to approach it with great care, to hold it as precious. But this space is not the tent of meeting. The, the stones here and the mosaics and the floor and the lovely wood and the holy table, these are not the places where God is specially present. God is not specially present in things of stone and wood, in a place, in a location. But through Jesus, he is present among his people. It is not through buildings, but through Jesus Christ that we relate to God. It is not in a building, but amongst his people that he dwells. And so, yes, I like these words because they tell us to reverence God's sanctuary. And that means for us, committing to love of one another. It means having regard for this community, this precious community, in which God dwells by his spirit. The people of God are where God chooses to dwell. God is here this morning. Not because of the sacredness of the space. If we went and met down at Wallara Library, he would be here, he would be there too. He is here because of the sacredness of the people who gather here. And it is among his people that the bewildered and lonely quest for our creator is met. Where is God? God is here. God chooses to be here. God, the almighty and holy, immortal God of eternity, has chosen to pitch his tent to come camping among us and has made us holy by the blood of his Son, so that we, you and I, might live together with him. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St Mark's.